Hi, I'm Karen. And I'm Natalie. And thanks for joining us here at The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. Natalie. Hello, Karen. So today's episode is part of our Knowledge Rising series, which is dedicated to conversations with young people, activists, and changemakers around the world who are working on the global issues that they care about. Yes. And so far, we've had conversations with some incredible young people around the world. And today we look at Knowledge Rising from the perspective of a young diplomat. Dira Fabrian is from the permanent mission of the Republic of Indonesia to the UN in Geneva, where at the time of recording, she served as second secretary political affairs at the mission. And she joined us to talk about her experience as a young diplomat working in and for multilateralism. Amazing. It must be so interesting to hear from a diplomat who began in the field in a time of growing technology and change. Yes, exactly. And she touches upon that, as well as how this kind of information landscape and how much technology is changing has already evolved so much in her time already as a diplomat. And we touch upon other elements as well of serving and working as a diplomat in this era, as well as her experience as a woman in the field. And she has some interesting tips as well on what it takes to find common ground in diplomacy. So you'll find out in the conversation. Wow, they all sound like such interesting and relevant topics. I'm mm. so excited to listen. And as always, we have resources in the podcast notes down below from the conversation for extra learning. So here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Dira. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to see you. In fact, it's not the first time we've met at the library. You joined us a few years ago for this wonderful event that we held with the Indonesian Mission. And you brought this huge instrument to the library um, <laughs> with several different parts that come together as a whole right. called the gamelon. Yes. Can you tell us what this instrument is about for those who don't know the gamelon? Yes, thank you. And I do still remember it vividly. <laughs> um, so it, again, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here, Natalie. Thanks for inviting me over. We had a fun time, didn't we, learning the gamelan? So to be honest, that was actually the first time for my, myself <laughs> <laughs> to learn the gamelan. So thanks to you. And I'm really amazed about the gamelan because it's not only about the beautiful melody of the ensemble, but it's really about the philosophy behind it as well. And so gamelan is a unique musical ensemble. It's like an Indonesian style orchestra um, where each instrument has different melodic range limitations. So no single instrument can be played alone or they can't even be played in pairs. So you really have to have that whole set all together to play. And all the players also need to listen to each other and work together to create the harmony. And this gamelan soft and beautiful harmonious music also depicts the kind of community envisaged by the Javanese and Indonesians in general, where the spirit of unity and collaboration prevails. And so, again, it's not just about aesthetics, but it's really about the philosophy behind it. This I really remember from the event. I remember your ambassador had said something like, through synergy, we create harmony. And that really struck me. I yeah. can't believe I can still remember that, but it must have struck a chord. Amazing. Yeah. And it makes sense because all of these instruments 
if you don't listen to each other and kind of respond to each other, yeah. there is no harmony. Exactly. And yeah, it kind of really um, represented, I think, a lot of how we work in terms of multilateralism and, and also here at the UN. So thank you so much for bringing us this instrument and helping us to learn more about it. You're very welcome. Exactly. I was just going to talk about multilateralism in that sense, right? I think it was a great program, you know, to send that message as well through Gamelan in the UN library. Yeah. So we're going to have a link to the Gamelan in the podcast show notes in case anyone's interested to find out more about this <laughs> awesome. instrument. But let's get started then, Dira. You're cool. a diplomat for the Indonesian mission to mm-hmm. the UN in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about yourself as we begin. What kind of inspired you to become a diplomat? Yeah, um, as you said, I'm working at the Indonesian mission and I mainly cover humanitarian issues. So that includes, among others, migration, refugees, and disaster risk reduction. And my diplomatic rank is second secretary. My term is ending soon, though, <laughs> so it's a bit bittersweet at the moment. So actually, being a diplomat has been a childhood dream for me. So, you know, it's really happy uh, to be able to become one. And I've been wanting to become one, actually, since I was 10. So I've been very persistent and determined in that way. That's incredible. <laughs> Since you were 10. Since I was 10. Um, I thought it was really cool, you know, when I saw the pictures of the diplomats, they're like sitting behind the country's nameplate and, you know, they're representing the country. And because of that dream, I decided to major in social science in high school. And then in university, in undergrad, I took up international relations. And upon graduation, I participated in the selection process of the new recruits of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, well, you can imagine how happy I was uh, when I was informed that I passed the exams and interviews. So a little message out there for the young listeners is to not be afraid to dream big. Because, you know, I've had some fair share of doubts from, you know, other people who thought like, you know, can you really make it? It's going to be tough. The selection process is, you know, is quite strict and everything. But hey, you know, apparently dreams do come true. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So for you as a diplomat now working in this sphere for around 10 mm-hmm. years, yeah. I, I have a little, you know, rapid fire question for you. <laughs> okay. If you could share three words that explain what diplomacy means to you, what would they be? Okay, cool. Uh, but before that, I just like <laughs> to make a disclaimer and I like to emphasize that I'm being candid in my responses. And so the responses that I give you is really my personal view and not my organization's view, just to be clear. <laughs> Great. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Um, okay. And the three words um, I think uh, that represents diplomacy would be communication, cooperation, and friendship. That's wow. for me. So I think diplomacy is important because it explores the possibilities of cooperation through communication and friendship. And it's my fervent belief that diplomacy and international relations, for that matter, really relies on people-to-people interaction. Diplomats have to be open-minded. And it's really that particular, um, you know, open-mindedness really helps to understand other nations' culture. And it really makes communications easier in my perspective. Yeah. So... Where did you start then? Walk us through, you know, the main highlights so far of your time in diplomacy. Where did you begin? Well, I began, as I mentioned, from the exam. And then we also had a training in Indonesia once we joined the ministry. And there we learn about, you know, some soft skills, some hard skills as well, about some, you know, materials that we need to understand, international politics, economy. But, you know, as I go into this profession, as you mentioned, it's been 10 years. I really think, you know, what I mentioned, the communication, cooperation, and friendship, that's really the essence of, you know, diplomacy. Like, you meet people, you talk to them, you try to understand their perspective and their positions, and then you try to work things out, you know, the challenges that we face all together. 
Yeah. The world of diplomacy is a really rich and complex mm-hmm. one, just like multilateralism itself. Yeah. So, you know, as a young diplomat, could you share with us your experience in kind of working in this multilateral environment that is so rich and complex? What do you think it's kind of critical to remember as a diplomat when you wake up each day and, and head to work? Right. You're absolutely right. You know, the working in multilateral environment is really rich. And for me, it's a fulfilling experience. It's a continuous process of learning, which I really like especially also when you cover multiple issues like me. And also the increasingly fast pace of today's world dynamics is also a challenge and an opportunity. Uh, It can be both. And so keeping up with that pace is a challenge. And so when I wake up every day, I make sure that I'm ready for the meetings that I have to attend. Um, And then my materials also. I don't really like being a deadliner, so I usually prepare them in advance. And then when I wake up, I try to, you know, look for updates if there is, just to make sure that, you know, whatever statements or, you know, for example, like background info that I have, they're up to date. And I also remind myself that this line of work is not just about me personally, but it's also about my country, about the world. And so that gives me a bit more of a push and encouragement to start my day. Yeah. So there is a lot of research and a lot of protocol and procedure um, in a lot of, I guess, the work that you do. But, you know, could you give us maybe some behind the scenes experiences that you have? Like, does it always work out as you wish every day? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, that's, I think, that's quite a difficult question. Um, Let's see, how do I formulate this? So, of course, Sometimes things don't work out the way you expect them to be. They're not as, as smooth um, as you wanted them to be. But I think that's also the beauty and the art of it. That's why there, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about how diplomacy is an art. It's not really a science, you know, mm-hmm. it's not exact. But I think it's really heartwarming, you know, for example, when I participate in a certain process and then we do manage to come up to an agreement. It's that really sense of fulfillment that keeps me and I believe all the other also going. So yes, we do face challenges and sometimes, you know, things don't work out the way we want them to be. And yes, multilateralism can be a relatively slow process, but, you know, it's um, it's an art and it makes the profession very colorful. Let's Amazing. call it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point that you mentioned that a lot of the times it is a slow process, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of the nature of, of our job to be able to work together and know that there are differences, but to keep going, I guess. Exactly. I mean, the differences makes, as I said, makes it more colorful as well. And of course, for example, in the UN with 193 countries, you can't expect everyone to have the same perspective, the same say, the same positions, because we don't start in the same place altogether at once. Like there are different developmental stages. There's different things happening domestically in the countries. So, but I don't see that as something that hampers multilateralism. I think it makes it more colorful. And I think that's the main challenge where we have to try to overcome it and try to understand one another, you know. And then it reminds me back to the gamelan. You know, you just <laughs> have to listen to each other and to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, you're able to create this harmony. Together, it sounds idealistic, but you know, <laughs> something to work towards. That's for exactly. Sure. Have there been any kind of lessons, or challenges, or even opportunities that have particularly marked you in your path so far as a young mm-hmm. diplomat? And what do these lessons kind of remind you of today as we work through some really critical global challenges, from the climate crisis mm-hmm. to being able to kind of meet the SDGs? Right. Well, to be honest, I used to be a bit pessimistic about multilateralism. Um, I did my short 
diplomatic assignment in our mission to New York uh, back in 2011. It was only for three months. But, you know, I come to this and we all know uh, that multilateralism is not the fastest process, as we've mentioned before. And so, you know, with the different interests and perspectives, it's not always easy to reach an agreement. As an illustration, you know, you're talking about some events, you know, maybe that affect, affected me. Like proposing a change of wording in a document sometimes can take like a few hours. You know, for some people, they'd be like, what would take that long? <laughs> but then <laughs> you need to understand that there are those different interests and perspectives. And then some people also point out how norm setting and multilateralism is like carving the sky because it doesn't bring like immediate tangible benefit to the people if you call it that way because it's mostly norm setting. However, as I got more involved in the process, my view has somewhat changed. So yes, it's not the fastest process, but I think it's really important to try to get every member on board while understanding everyone's position. So with all the challenges that you mentioned, the climate crisis, you know, climate change, a lot, you know, migration, refugees, there are so many issues at the moment. I think it's really important that we get everyone on board and that we emphasize that the most important thing is cooperation. So we must try to overcome these different perspectives and try to work together towards a common goal. I find multilateralism more appealing compared to, you know, in the past. I think through those lessons and through the experiences that I uh, went through, I come to understand how, for example, exciting it is to finalize a document, you know, like everyone in the room be cheering and clapping and stuff like that. So I think it's wonderful to get everyone on board to manage to come up to a conclusion and to an agreement. This must be something very rewarding at the end of the day. Yes, very fulfilling, very rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> something I keep on remembering. <laughs> That's really great. Do you kind of see a changing role for young diplomats in multilateralism? I can't help but, you know, think that we're going through so much change right now, yeah. in, not just in terms of the, the world, but also how we view multilateralism. Mm -hmm. What do you think can be brought to mm -hmm. the table by diplomats coming in right now, for example, based on what you've learned? Is there anything that we can kind of try to evolve or practice more to be able to make multilateralism more inclusive and relevant to the world today? Right. Um, I think the younger generation, including young diplomats for that matter, benefit from a more integrated world. So communication and transportation are easier, faster, and cheaper. And so this development also affects diplomacy, not only in a multicultural setting, uh, but also more generally. So reaching out is definitely a way to make multilateralism more inclusive. And this can be done by simple means, such as providing information through social and mainstream media. We have, you know, a lot of youngsters in social media and also a lot of young people and diplomats also writing for even mainstream media. Or, for example, holding discussion sessions with numerous stakeholders to get them in the process, including youth. And so multilateralism has actually become more inclusive by ensuring that no one is left behind. And that paves a smoother path for young diplomats to play a role, I think. Yeah. Is there anything you would give as advice mm -hmm. to a diplomat, for example, that were to start today in the service? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in the position to give anyone <laughs> advice at the moment, uh, but I guess keeping up with this new information, it's really overwhelming. And you know that there are a lot of misperceptions or even like, you know, hoax, false news. So I think what's important is to try 
your best to filter out the information, this overwhelming information that's all around you. And I think that would be a very good way to start, I think, for the diplomats who are starting today, because it's really different I, compared to the past. I mean, even compared to when I joined, I don't think the flow of information is at this rapid stage. Yeah. You know, in 10 years, everything has evolved so quickly and quicker. Absolutely. That's yeah. good advice. And for all of us too. Yes. Um, I know on a daily basis how much information is kind of even pushed to us, even without us looking for it. Um, exactly. Kind of pulling it. And so it, it can be tiring. Exactly. Um, and sometimes I think another challenge is to try to verify that. Yes. Because sometimes you receive, you know, from everywhere, sometimes in just like chat applications, right? What Whatever you use with your friends, your your family members, your colleagues, you get like all these information, and sometimes it's possible to get lazy to verify those news. So I think that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah. So as we're you know looking at multilateralism, mm-hmm. I think one question we're looking at very much more closely at the podcast these days is yeah. inclusion, inclusivity. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've spoken to a few guests already on the podcast mm-hmm. in our events, the library as well, about the role of the global South in multilateralism. Right. Now, this itself is not such a new question, mm-hmm. um, but I'd be curious to know your your insights on this. Indonesia is a populous and really influential part of the of the Southeast Asia region. So what is it like for you to kind of make sure that the Global South is heard and is active in multilateralism? Right. I think personally, it's not really like a matter of North and South or any Mm. other classification of countries. Rather, I believe that in multilateralism, every country matters and they do have a say in the issue at hand. And multilateralism would not work if only some are on board. So you must make sure that everyone, you know, altogether has a common goal to achieve and in order to be, to be heard we have to be present so on a day-to-day basis I'll be you know attending meetings and of course I need to be ready by doing my research well of course you know the main principle uh, in multilateralism I think is cooperation and this needs to be understood by everyone and even sometimes as I mentioned before you know it's not a matter of these categorizations because the categorizations uh, as well, they're not really clear cut. Like say Indonesia is an influential part of the South uh, East Asian region, but then we're also a member of the G20, the non-aligned movement. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's really difficult to draw the borders and, you know, what categories. So I think the most important thing is to remember that every country matters and that you have to be present to be heard, I think. Being present. I really <laughs> like this idea. Yeah. <laughs> On, you know, the the question of inclusion, um, if we look at it from a more broader perspective Mm -hmm. as well about representation, do you see any opportunities here for more inclusive multilateralism Mm -hmm. by any country? What's your experience here? How can we make multilateralism more inclusive? So I think the world has changed a lot and there's been a discussion everywhere about this, right? And the playing field is arguably becoming more level with, you know, more countries on the table and the development progress and the power of the developing countries or global south, if you would like to call it, cannot be undermined even at the moment. So there are opportunities. But the thing is, what I want to emphasize here is that the opportunities have been there in the past as well. So, for example, the developing countries have been advocating inclusive multilateralism since they've become independent. And, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, and I'd like to 
you know, share a case in point. For example, in the midst of the Cold War and less than 10 years after Indonesia proclaimed its independence, Indonesia hosted the renowned Asian African Conference, or otherwise known as the Bandung Conference. And the spirit of the conference was anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and anti-racism, as well as enhanced cooperation among the nations in Asia and Africa. And even in the in his opening remarks, President Sukarno of Indonesia underscored the importance of Asian and African countries to participate in global politics and voice out their interests since they have been voiceless long enough. Now, the impact of the conference was very significant because not only did it boost the determination of Asian and African countries to become independent, but it also inspired the founding of the non-aligned movement. And in this movement, the countries of the movement did not want to be a passive actor in international politics. So they wish to have the liberty to formulate their own positions independent of ideology you know, in the midst of the Cold War. So uh, my point is that inclusiveness is not actually really a new phenomenon. And I think everyone can have a say in that. And uh, the countries, if you talk about uh, the global south, they have been advocating this for so long because they do want their voices to be heard. And then that's why they have the, these groupings. They make their own groupings as well to voice out their interests. Have you seen this grow? Even though you do mention that it's not something that's not new. Mm -hmm. Have you seen changes and evolution of this over your time as a diplomat? Well, I've only been a diplomat for 10 years. <laughs> um, so, But what happens today is always built up from the past, right? I think this activism is consistently growing stronger and stronger. And that might be the difference. But it's, you know, as I mentioned, it's a process that's been ongoing. It's not new. But I do see that more countries are getting more active to About voice it. out, yeah, to yeah. voice out their interests and their positions. So it's it's a very positive development. Yeah. In fact, you remind me of some episodes we've had mm -hmm. that look really into our history and that, right. you know, where we are now is because of continual progress, I guess, even if it's not linear, we're kind of here because of what's happened in our past. Exactly. And it's not even about countries, it's about engaging more stakeholders. You hear a lot about, for example, the SDGs leaving no one behind. You know, it's um, this sort of thing is voiced out everywhere. So it's not only about including all the countries, which is, which is a must, um, but it's also about engaging more stakeholders. And I think that's what multilateralism more inclusive as yeah. well. So in that sense, I think there's been even more changes. Yeah, yeah. it's exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Looking a bit more into inclusion, but kind of more focusing on women now, women right. in leadership. Mm -hmm. You are a woman diplomat and mm -hmm. one who inspires our team at the library a lot. <laughs> um, and while a lot of progress definitely has been made um, in gender equality throughout mm -hmm. the world, um, we're seeing more and more women diplomats, especially, yeah. um, and in leadership positions, in political positions. Correct. But of course, there's always much work to be done. And there's one index that I wanted to share with you. It's called the Women and Foreign Policy Program mm. at the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay. And they released something called the Women's Power Index. Mm -hmm. And it was released in 2020, uh, last year in September, the latest version. And basically this index ranks 193 UN member states or member states mm -hmm. on their progress toward gender parity in political participation, not just nationally, but also locally. Mm -hmm. And they've got a lot of results and I won't read them all out and um, we'll, we'll make sure the link to Perfect. The, the index is in the notes. Just some things that I thought were quite striking. Mm -hmm. uh, 21 out of 193 countries have a female head mm -hmm. of state or government. 
Four out of 193 countries have at least 50% women in the national legislature, and two countries have at least 50% female mm. representation in local legislature. Now, of course, we, we shouldn't take the, the results out of context. There's, mm. there's lots to read about the index as well. Right. But I just wanted to get your thoughts based on your personal experience you know, in diplomacy. Mm -hmm. What work can still be done to ensure equal representation of women in politics, but right. also diplomacy? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. <laughs> I'm actually inspired by you and your team at the library, Natalie. It's amazing how you actively take part in the transformation of the library by making it as an integrated learning space. You know, it's not just about books, but you have discussions, you have activities, and now you have a podcast. It's amazing to be here. Let me just say that <laughs> out loud at first. Now back to your question. So thanks for pulling out the data. I actually just uh, have heard about it from you. Based on the number, indeed, you're right, you know, more work needs to be done to improve progress towards gender parity and political participation nationally and locally. For me personally, it's heartwarming to see more and more female diplomats and in leadership positions, for that matter, because that means I have more role models. This reminds me of an article I've read um, or an interview of which I can't remember uh, which that said that it helps women to have more women role models in their lives because there's this notion of if she can do it, so can I you can relate to someone. And so what I want to stress is that the process is as important or even maybe more important than the result. At the end of the day, everything in life is a choice. And, you know, we can't blame women who are not interested in politics or not interested in diplomacy. I think that's where you said we must not take the data out of context. You need to understand how the data came about and where it came from. But what's important and what I want to underline here is that we need to make sure that they chose what they chose out of free will and based on complete information and the provision of equal access with men when we talk about gender parity. And this means not only access into the job, but also for promotion, for example. Um, and also women need to be empowered in making a choice and their accomplishments to be acknowledged and celebrated, um, as in the words of Dr. Biden, the current first lady. I also wanted to ask you about how, you know, um, this relates to leadership and defining leadership today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because we are seeing more and more conversation on diversifying what leadership is, itself means, yeah. you know, looking at even in terms of uh, compassion, empathy being core elements of leadership today, right, right, which right, weren't right. necessarily considered leadership components in the past. Right. So how can we keep working to, you know, like redefine leadership and, and work to build diversity in its definition, essentially, so that we can kind of move forward in new ways? Right. I think it's important to keep that discussion about leadership going. And, you know, you mentioned also about how podcast also had this discussion on history on how, what, you know, what we have today is affected by what happened, by what happened in the past. Personally, I don't like to classify leadership based on sex because to me, it just justifies the stereotype of gender roles and personalities. For example, oh, the notion that we need more women leaders because women are more compassionate. Mm. Like, of course, your background influences your leadership style and background includes, you know, upbringing and gender roles. But I think leadership is also a personal trait. Uh, however, I do agree that there needs to be diversity in leadership and that leadership needs to be adjusted to the current conditions. I think maybe the democracy, you know, the notion of democracy that's more widespread right now contributes to this notion that, oh, you know, leadership is not just about being tough and making decisions, but you also need this compassion, um, empathy in leadership. So I'd like to, you know, to underline that it is important to keep that discussion going and to adapt leadership styles with the changing conditions of today's world. 
Right. So leadership that continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. Nice. <laughs> you know, we had an episode a few a few weeks ago on learning to be a leader, um, where Professor David Day really uh, stressed that right. um, leadership is not necessarily something natural. Uh, it's a it's a choice to learn to be a leader. Definitely. Let's just say not everyone might want to be one. You know, just like choosing a profession. Mm. Not everyone wants to be a diplomat, you know, not everyone wants to be a politician. And so it's just important to have that choices out there and not to classify people into these categories. Oh, because you're a woman, you're more suited to be like a doctor or you're more suited to be a you know, a certain profession. Mm. Yeah. The I choice think to be truly there. Yeah, the choice needs to be there, I think. And I think that needs to start from a very young age because I think that's where we start, you know, socially constructing our perspective on our roles in the society. Absolutely. There was one more thing in the index, the results mm -hmm. of the index that, mm -hmm. you know, struck me. And it, right. it found that women's representation uh -huh. matters in right. politics right. because they're more likely to promote finding common ground, mm -hmm. equality and social welfare, and stability too. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about that, not just in terms of women, but diplomats. Right. <laughs> How do diplomats kind of work to find this common ground, to kind of bring these differences together, uh -huh. um, see what's kind of missing, what has worked, what needs to change, what's been left out, and what needs to be brought in? This is difficult work, and it takes time. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I, I think it's a like a million-dollar question. Everyone wants to know the answer, but we're not sure who has the correct answer. Or maybe there is no correct answer because the notion keeps on evolving. So the results of the research is providing an actual alternative view from what I just said. But on the notion of finding a common ground, I think it takes creativity, it takes agility, and an open mind. So I think it's true that there's somewhat a trade-off between inclusivity and responsiveness in decision-making, because the more inclusive the process is, the more likely that the process becomes more time-consuming. Uh, we mentioned earlier, we know with more actors involved, then the process might might become slower. At the same time, I see that inclusivity actually helps find the common ground. And this is what's actually needed to find what you mentioned, seeing what's missing, what's left behind. With more perspective and more ideas, then you can sort of like get out of that whatever blind spots you might, you might have uh, in your perspective, I think. And so it helps to get the perspectives of other people to find what's missing and what you think needs to be done to improve. Yeah. So it takes longer, but it's worth it. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think that's, um, that's what I've been thinking about, you know, with all your questions um, so far. Yeah, it, it does take more effort. It does become more challenging, but it's worth the process, the challenge and the time when you you know, bring everyone together on the table and then, you know, you work things out. Everyone works for the common goal because nothing can work if you just do it alone. Nobody can do it alone, actually, or even if you just do it with a group of countries. Yeah. yeah. Dira, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's great to hear your views. If there's one thing you'd like to share mm -hmm. for people to remember right. from this conversation, mm -hmm. uh, what would it be? Well, oh, I hope the conversation has been useful for the listeners. Um, and I think you raised very important topics about inclusivity, leadership, gender parity, and women empowerment of, in multilateralism. I hope that this discourse and these topics will continue because that's the only way we can ensure progress. Yeah. So I hope that's what the listeners can you know, bring back home. Fantastic. <laughs> so for you, I mean, what's next? What do you hope for, for your career, for, for your life? 
Uh, well, after my post ends in Geneva, I'll have to head back to Indonesia and I'll continue serving in the foreign ministry. I uh, will be posted at our mission to ASEAN in Jakarta. So, um, look, I'm looking forward to that and I hope we can still keep in touch and, you know, see maybe there are some further collaborations. Maybe if you're interested to hear more about ASEAN matters in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish you all the very best on your next posting. That's really exciting. Thank you very much, Natalie. All the best as you continue this great work bringing mm-hmm. cooperation and, and countries together. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Hope to see you soon, even if it's online. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thank goodness for technology. (laughs) Thank you, dear. Thank you so much, Natalie.